Thanks, Gary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in bringing us to a close, to the close of another year, the life that you've given us, the joy that has come from celebrating the Christmas season. So God, we want to take some time right now just to adore you for who you are. You are glorious and beautiful and righteous and true and full of love and goodness. God, you are in control of all things, the the good and the hard. God, we confess that many of us wrap up the year in a state of anxiety or fear. We feel that as we look into the new year, unsure of what is going to happen. We confess that so often we place our own desires before you. I know I do. We confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, that we have not loved our brothers and sisters in Christ as we should have. But Father, we give thanks to you for the gift of your Son as we've celebrated throughout the Advent season that despite our weakness and our sin, God, you loved us to the point where you were willing to send your son to die, to be resurrected so that we would have life, life to the full. And so, Father, we ask that for us, as we look forward to the new year, that you would fill our hearts full of goodness and joy and truth and grace and all of the things that make for Christ-likeness. I thank you for my friends here today, and God, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that we would all be built up into greater degrees of Christ-likeness. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning. morning. Happy New Year. Year. All right. How many of you kids got, like, excellent presents? And how many of you kids at heart? (laughs) Yeah. See, don't, yeah, raise your hands. You can raise your hands in here. Don't be afraid. Yeah. There you go. So I uh, I was sharing with one of the congregants in here earlier that, we took my son Noah, we went to go see my side of the family, and we got there around the time is for him to go down to bed to take a nap. And I put him down, and I was like, you know, as adults, we could still open our presents right now. I promise. And then when he wakes up, then all of our eyes will be trained on him, and he'll have all the attention. And the reality is, I just wanted to open presents. I don't really care if all the attention is on him. I'm just kind of a kid at heart. Um, and so that's kind of what, the way I am throughout the holiday season. I hope you guys had a good Christmas season. Um, I hope that um, you look forward to the new year with expectation. And so to that end, uh, I want to spend some time today reflecting on a theme in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. That's going to be our text today, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And as we look to the new year, there's perhaps no greater theme or idea or reality that has captivated the human mind in the West, but also in the rest of the world, like that of love. As we look to the new year, maybe there's not a better thing to think through and to ponder and to um, reflect on than, than what it means for us to love those around us. There's a, a pretty well-known author by the name of Shakespeare, and he wrote these words of the star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, 
Um, he said, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. He wrote these words of the love that is romance, uh, the love that lovers have for one another, that for Romeo, Juliet is his son. He, uh, she, she illuminates the world around him. She provides clarity, right? brightness, light in the midst of darkness. But we recognize that there's more than just romantic love. We have the love of friendship, right? Uh, authors like J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, they're known for creating, this, this guy, this father of, of fantasy is known for creating these massive worlds filled with orcs and elves and all other such nerd-like things that I love. And um, we tend to think of him as this, this, this author of epic battles, but in many ways, the Lord of the Rings, the first title, The Fellowship of the Ring, kind of hints at the spiritual ethos of that book, and it's, it's that of, of friendship and companionship, the love of friendship. And that's why Sam, the gardener, right, the guy that you would, exp- he's, he doesn't bear this massive sword or this axe or this bow. He's just faithful. And you have this great scene where the Lord of the Rings really shows that it's about the love of friends. And it's towards the end, Sam and Frodo are going towards Mount Doom. And in case you don't know what the plot of the Lord of the Rings is, you're like 50 years behind, but we'll catch you up. He has to destroy a ring in a fiery chasm, as like all fantasy novels, apparently. That's kind of what their, their MO. So he's on his way, and they're at the, the end of their journey, and they realize, hey, this, this may be a one-way trip. We've run out of food. We're tired. We can't keep going. And so they're so close to their destination, they just give out from exhaustion. And towards the end, Sam gathers up all his strengths, and he tells Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, that is to say the ring, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And if there's a grown man in here whose eyes don't well up, he's lying to you, right? And so he hoists up Mr. Frodo and carries him up the mountain, um, and they finish their quest. uh, There's a love of friendship. It's compelling, right? It speaks to us. But then there's also the love of family. And somewhat of a different source, Friedrich Nietzsche, if you guys are familiar with that name, he's a German atheistic philosopher. He's being quoted in a church service today. He's one that's most infamously known for saying that God is dead. And he's actually bemoaning the fact that if you remove God from the equation, then you lose the foundation for ethics and morality and all the things that make for a good and just society. But he wrote this of love, right? He says, in family life, love is the oil that eases friction. You guys know about that with the holidays, right? It's the cement that binds closer together, and it's the music that brings harmony. So you have three different types of people. You've got this playwright, you have this this author of fantasy novels, and you have a German atheistic philosopher whose words right there I think most of us would agree with. We We would resonate to those things, and he certainly isn't on our team. And so the reality is, is that if love has been such a compelling theme for however many years, across a broad swath of people, then it is imperative that as Christians, we understand what God has to say about love, and we understand what he values and what the true essence of love is as defined by him. And that's where 1 John comes in. John is known as the apostle of love, and the book of 1 John is a letter written to believers, and it effectively distills many of the theological concepts contained in John's gospel. And one of the biggest theological concepts that John comes back to again and again and again is love. It's love. And so in many ways, today's sermon is a follow-up to Andy Wildman's sermon during the first Sunday of Advent, which was about God's love for us as seen through the pattern of uh, Isaac or uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac. And today is really 
not so much focused with God's love for us, but what are we called to do towards other people as it relates to love? What should we do as it relates to love with respect to other people? And First John has a lot to say about it. He loves love. And so to that end, as we look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, there are a few questions that we want to answer. Number one, what is the call with respect to love? What are we supposed to do? Number two, why should we love? And number three, what is love? To quote that infamous Pepsi Super Bowl commercial, if you remember. It's like late 2000s? No? There's not a second service, so I won't use that one either. <laughs> what is love? Right? What constitutes love? And then there's a product that comes about... Um, after, after examining these things. So, so 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. So, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So as you can tell, John has a few things to say about love. I think uh, if you look at the the different terms of the verbs, the nouns, uh, the term beloved, it's something like 14 or 15 times it shows up in the span of these uh, verses 7 through 12. And so in answering the question, what are we called to do with love, it's actually a pretty straightforward answer. It's seen in verses uh, 7 and 11. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us and sent his son, sorry, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So in answering the call, what are we called to do with love? In answering the question, what are we called to do with love? The, the, the answer is simple. We are called to love one another. Now notice in verse 11, there's, there's this language of obligation, right? If God so loved us, we also ought, right? It's not a suggestion. It's not something that would be nice to do on a Sunday when you have time. There's this language of obligation. This is a requirement of Christian living, love for one another. And then notice the language in in, in verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. This we language, John is not exempting himself from this. This isn't uh, for for special Christians like John or or professional um, like pastors or whatever. This is all believers everywhere. This is a we, this is an us thing. Let us love one another. The call is simple. But if we're not careful, sometimes one of the challenges that we have in reading Scripture is that we become familiar with passages like this, and we don't recognize the full import of what Jesus is saying. I think there's a temptation to read these words, let us love one another, that the one another here means sort of this universal brotherhood of people. And it's true, Jesus says that we're called to love our enemies, called to pray for those who persecute us. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. But there are a few things to keep in mind as John is writing these, these words to his audience. Number one, his audience is primarily, is, is almost completely made up of believers. And we get this from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. The whole purpose for why John was writing 1 John is this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you have eternal life. The book of 1 John is a book about assurance. It's, it's a book about people who are struggling. There have been people who have been challenging them in their faith. They've been questioning whether or not Jesus actually died. They've been questioning if you actually need to love people. And John is writing so that he can give a number of signs to this group of believers to ensure that they are sure that they are Christians. And so when he's writing this command to love one another, he's writing first and foremost to the community of faith. But there's another thing that we have to keep in mind, and we saw it earlier in today's reading from John 15, that this command to love one another that John, that, that God speaking through John gives us, this isn't the first time this shows up. First John, once again, is a distillation of, it's, it's a summary in many ways of what John's gospel is doing for like 21, 22 chapters. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this. Uh, it's verse 35, and we'll get a running start in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when Jesus is talking, he's in the upper room. He's talking to his 12 closest disciples. He's talking to the community of faith. And the reason why this is important is when we talk about the call to love one another, that is first and foremost in John's mind, the call for the people in this room to love the people in this room. It is a call for believers to take care of one another. More on why that's the case. The thing I love about the call to love is that it's, it's not a complex call. It's really simple. Um, I'm known for kind of giving these like convoluted questions. I'm also known for like giving convoluted clues and catchphrase, which is not like a good thing. Right? I, there was one time uh, many Christmases ago, I got the, the, the thing on catchphrase Jurassic Park. And uh, I was like, uh, it's John Williams wrote this score. And my cousin goes, nope, don't do that. And I was like, music, dinosaurs, Jurassic Park. Um, anyway, so it, the thing I love about love is that it's, it's not, the call to do it is not, it's not complicated. It's a simple call. Now, sometimes the manifestation may be hard to understand and hard to discern. But it's one of those things that as believers we are called to do. It's simple. So the question becomes, why? Why should we love one another? And there are a couple reasons, but the first one relates to verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for, God is, for, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, notice, there, there's a contrast here. There's this language of being born from God. There's this, there's this contrast that happens. Being born of God is a theme throughout John's gospel that is uh, really important. It comes from John 3. And this idea of being, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And what John is saying here in verse 7 is, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That is to say, if we truly are God's children, one of the essential markers of being a child of God is that we have love for the community of faith. Obviously, those outside of the faith too, this doesn't mean that you don't love those outside of the faith, but there is an, there, there's an imperative, there's a first and foremost love that we show to one another. And inversely, in verse 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God. And then here's the kicker. Why? 
Because God is love. Now, there's some confusion sometimes as to what God is love means. You can't reverse the words. You can't say that love is God. But when John is writing about God being love, he is saying that God in his very character is loving. It is natural. It is fitting for him to love. Uh, No one has to compel God to love. He does it of his own free will because that is who he is in his very nature. And so when we think about the call to love one another as believers, the, 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 the reasoning is simple. God in his love for us sent his son to die for us because he cares for us. He loves us. He holds us in great affection. And if God did that for us, it doesn't make any sense for us to say, well, God does that for fellow believers, but we can you know, sort of separate ourselves from that and live a different life. No, the logic is simple. God is loving in his very self, and because he is loving, he loves his bride, the church, and therefore we also, if we would claim to be his, are called to love one another, which of course is, once again, it's a simple call. Simple doesn't mean easy, because people get on our nerves. People hurt our feelings. People disappoint us. If we would be God's, we must act and live as God lived. We must reflect his values. Imagine for a second that you're, you're living in Boston in the late t- 1700s, and you're heard in the rowdy tavern saying, God save the king. I love King George III. And then July 4th rolls around, the Declaration of Independence comes out, and there's your name at the bottom. What in the world would would you think about? Like, what would we think about you? Are you a a loyalist? Are you a patriot? Whose side are you on? It would be hard to know, but if you had to place money on it, you would bet that the signing of your name probably reflects what it is that you believe in and value. And the reason why I bring that up is, when you sign your name to that document, you're signing your name to a list of values and principles that are completely at odds with being a loyalist, with loving King George III. And if we would truly be, if we would truly be God's people, if we would truly be his sons and his daughters, we are called to live and act in accordance with his very character. And to live a life that is devoid of love for one another is to live a life that is devoid of God's character. The natural question, though, if you've been following along and you're thinking critically, where all the money's made is the question, what is love? Because we can agree that God loved us and we can agree that we ought to love because God is loving, but the the, the million-dollar question today is, what does it actually mean to love people? Sometimes it feels like love is just this radical affirmation. Sometimes it feels like love is just like acceptance without any questions, but But how did God love us? Because remember, that's the logic of verse 11. If God loved us in this way, if God loved us in this manner, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How did God love us? Well, I see three things, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10, I think, reflect three values that, that God has in his love for us, or three manifestations of God's love for us. And the first one is, love is initiating. Love is initiating. We get this in verse 9 and 10. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to focus in on the word sent. It it shows up twice. It shows up in verse 9, and it shows up in 10. Now, the reason why sent is an important is an important word here is because it, it comes on the heels in verse 10 of a contrast, right? Notice in verse 10, it, it, John is distilling down what love is. He says, in this is love. And he says, not that we loved God, not that human beings love God, but what? That he loved us. And how did he love us? He loved us by sending his son. Now, what this shows us is that even though we were completely devoid of love for God by virtue of our sin, by virtue of being at enmity with him because of our sin, he still held us in affection to the point where he was willing to send his one and only son. He sent him. No one compelled him to do it. No one made him do it. God is completely free. He can do as he pleases. And what he pleased to do was to send his son because he loves us, because he loves his bride. Love is initiating. And, and we know this to be true. We've had friends that will reach out to us and say, hey, I'd like to get a cup of coffee with you. Or I'd like to take you out for lunch. Or hey, it could be something as big as, hey, I'd like to go on vacation with you. And it's unsolicited. It's not something where you've said like 13 times, hey, we should get together. And they're like, uh-huh, that's, no, that's a great idea. We'll talk in like six years, you know? No, we all have friends that they'll come to us and they'll initiate something. They'll say, hey, I'd really like to spend time with you. And that communicates love. Why? Because it's uncompelled. It's not forced. It's, it's someone who says, I see you and I really value you as a person. And I would love just to spend some time getting to know you better, hearing about your life, whatever it is. God, out of his love for us, sent us his son of his own free will without compulsion. Because he loved us. Love is not only initiating, love, love is also sacrificial. And we see this also in the word sent, but sent as it relates to propitiation. See, because, because Jesus loved us, he was willing to sacrifice. In the sending of his son, once again, he sent it to a people, to a world that did not love him. And yet we know from the scriptures that the father deeply loves the son. The son is beloved by the father. When Jesus was baptized, what did the father say to the son? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased at the Mount of Transfiguration. He said the same thing again. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus all throughout John's gospel talks about how he loves the father and the father loves him. And the father who loved the son who was most beautiful, most glorious, most perfect, he he never did anything that was wrong, was willing to send him to a world that did not love him because the father loved the world so deeply. But he wasn't willing just to send the son to a world that didn't love him so that the son could walk around and have a good time and live a relatively peaceful life. He sent him to be propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation at its core means appeasement or satisfaction. He sent Jesus to satisfy, the father sent the son to satisfy the father's wrath. Propitiation is paired with this word called expiation, which just means payment. 
that the father was giving the son as payment for sins to satisfy the father's wrath. And if you know anything about sacrifices and propitiation throughout the Bible, you know that that comes by shedding blood. When the father sent the son, the whole reason as to why he sent the son, you see it in John's gospel in chapter 12, where Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this very reason I have come. This idea of hour in John's gospel means that, it means the cross. It means going to the cross and making payment for sin. Love is not just initiating, it's sacrificial. The Father gives that which is most beautiful and most valuable and most glorious, despite for a people that, that, that don't love him back. And cannot know love until they have seen the Son. We see this type of love in the love that mothers have for their children, right? You see, you see this type of love in, in the love that mothers have for their children when a mother gives birth, right? It's excruciating. Michelle, she had sciatica at the very end. Poor gal. But it's not just the giving birth. It's, it's recovery after a lot of times there's depression that comes with it. And even at the beginning, the things you have to give up. You have to give up cold cuts? Are you serious right now? Right? A nice glass of wine? Uh, one of my buddies, his wife, when she was pregnant, they couldn't cook meat in the house. And the only meat he could eat was a cold cut outside. Right? So there's a lot that you give up. And yet, why do mothers give all of this up? Certainly not convenient. It's not easy. They give it up because they love their children. Love is sacrificial. It's initiating. It's sacrificial. But the last one, and maybe the most crucial one, especially in light of where we are as a culture, is that love is righteous. Love is righteous. St. Thomas Aquinas describes love as willing the good for the other. You want what is right, what is good, what is true, what is holy. You're not content to see someone destroy themselves. You're not content to affirm something that will lead into more and more sin, whatever that thing may be. You want to see someone well and whole and right. You get this from propitiation again. Propitiation for what? For our sins. And sometimes when we talk about sin, it's hard, right? Because we all have it. We all know that we have sin that, that lingers and lurks and we're ashamed of it. And, and I'm right there with you, right? There's no one who's righteous. Apart from Christ, there's no one who's righteous. The love that the Father has is righteous. And if we think about it, even though sin makes us uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable to talk about, we don't want to live ultimately in a world where there is sin. All the times in which we come up against greed or lust or pride, those are not beautiful times. Those are not times of joy, whether they were caused by us towards someone else or brought to bear up upon us. In moments in which we experience unrighteousness, we're experiencing an absence of love. And the Father, in his great love for us, not only was willing to initiate, it was not only willing to sacrifice, he did it the right way. And in so doing, he secured a future in the new heaven and new earth 
where we can be confident that there will never be any semblance or stain of sin. And that's a good thing. That is a beautiful thing. God's love is initiating. He reaches out. It's sacrificial. He's willing to give of himself. It's righteous. There's no ounce of sin that creeps into it. So there's a product that comes from this. There's a product. Verse 12 has this really, it's really strange if you read it. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Just feels like it's kind of out of the blue, right? And then he picks back up on love. But I think what John is doing here is I think that he's saying, as, as you read, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. That even though no one has ever seen the Father, whenever we love as he loved, we give people a glimpse into who God is. We allow them to see just how good, just how righteous, just how loving, just how sacrificial this God is by virtue of our love. Whereas John said in chapter 13 of his gospel, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Whenever we love each other within the walls of this church and each other outside of the walls of this church and we do right by one another and we initiate and we take care of one another, that is a testimony to the world that we look differently. And if you think about people who have apostatized, who have left the faith, it's rarely, I mean, sometimes it's because of actual reasoning and like intellectual issues, but that's rarely the case. It's usually because of backbiting and nastiness. And yet I think one of the beautiful things about this congregation is I think that there are a number of people here who have been hurt and who have experienced love within these walls with, through these people and have really experienced the testimony that you guys really are disciples of the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing. Man, I want to encourage you guys in that. What would it look like for us to be people who love? What would it look like for us to be people who initiate, who sacrifice, who are righteous? And I think, you know, one of the things that was so great about Jeff, his superpower is that he met people. He saw them. How many people here ended up coming back to this church because he shook your hand and he knew your name? He said, hi, my name's Jeff. Anybody? Yeah, Gary is like, he's giving us the old uh, the baseball signage down low, right? <laughs> That was one of his superpowers. As a congregation, we have, we have shoes to fill in. And was, let's meet new people. Let's see people who are here, who are believers, who are looking for a church home. Let's make an effort to really reach out and know their names, right? Or you're just communicating. I, I had an example of a guy where I just remembered his name the next week, and that was the reason he came back. That shows you just how starved people are for love. What would it look like for us to sacrifice? There may be some things that we have to give up, Maybe it's, for our congregation, being willing to sacrifice more time and convenience. Maybe in the realm of kids, it's inconvenient, right? How in the world are you going to get a kid to nap time? Trust me, Michelle and I know, we're like, oh, right? What would it look like for us to be righteous? I think this is maybe one of the ways in which our congregation can be salt and light to the, con- to, to the, to the world around us. To say, hey, this thing like, that, that you're doing is not great. But man, I love you, and I care about you, and I want you to be okay. I want you to be good. I want you to be better than just okay. I want you to be squared away. I want you to be right. 
And so I say, I, I talk to you about this thing that's hard, not because I'm better than you, but because I know where, where you've been. And I want to be there too. Uh, there was an example of this, of this with, with my wife, Michelle. I was sitting down, we were sitting down at the lunch table and I was talking about a friend that's just been hard for me. And I was talking about how, you know, I know I should call him, but I just feel like, and then just wandered into a trail of like, not Christ-like reasoning, like just such weak, like, I just don't really want to call him and I don't really have a reason why I shouldn't call him but I want to say stuff that makes it sound like I have a reason that I, that I shouldn't call him. And, and just like Michelle, so gentle and kind, said, I just think, you know, I just think he needs you to love him. I was like, well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> right? Like, oh. But I think that's where we can grow as a congregation. I think that's probably any congregation. But man, if, if we combine these ideas of initiating, of sacrifice, of righteousness, and we do that for one another, there's a lot of good to be had in that. The most beautiful thing about this is that, you know, we have words for initiation, like initiation, and words for righteousness, like righteousness, and, and that those, aren't, those words aren't love. Love is this thing. I think what's so beautiful about love is that it's this sense of affection that ties all of this together and brings it to bear on people. And when you think about God's love for you, it's yes, it was sacrificial, and yes, it was righteous, and yes, he initiated things. But he did all those things freely. And he did them because he wanted to do them, because that's who he is in his character. Paul, Paul talks about love like this. It's 1 Corinthians 13. See if I can get to it quick enough. It says, love is patient and kind. Does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the type of love that God has for us. And friends, if God loved us in this way, let's love one another like this. God, thank you for today. We thank you for the great love that you have for us. And Father, we, God, when we talk about love like this, it's easy to just see the, the, the great gap between the type of love that we ought to have, which is love that reflects you, and the love that we actually have which is marred by sin and weakness and frustration. And so, Father, sometimes when we hear stuff like this, we are just so convicted that it feels like, what's the point? But one of the beautiful things about your word is that you anticipate these things. And even in this very letter, you tell us that if anyone says he does not have sin, he's a liar. He doesn't know. If any, you tell us that you're writing these things so that we shouldn't sin, but even if we do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is to say in the moments when we feel broken over our lack of love and our sin and all of these things that create brokenness in the world, we are given the assurance that for those of us who are in Christ, who have believed in your Son, Father, 
that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, even when we fail. And so, Father, let us rest in this confidence, but let us be spurred on to action. Let us care for one another. And, Father, I say that as someone who is, is not great at it. You say that love is, does not insist on its own way. I'm pretty good at insisting on my own way. So, Father, in the ways that I need to repent, Father, in the ways that as a congregation we need to repent, I ask that by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would allow us to repent so that we could love one another. And, Father, not just so that our congregation um, could grow and grow and grow in Christ-likeness, but so that those on the outside who see us will know that we are your disciples and they will have a testimony to your goodness to your grace, and to your initiating, sacrificial, righteous love. I thank you for all the good things you've given us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.